Well, it's been quite a week. How many times have we said that over the last 10 years or so? But the government's lost an immigration minister and the Conservative Party seems to have gone to war with itself over immigration. And not just over so-called irregular migration, but also over the levels of legal migration into this country. Now, as you'll know, we've tackled immigration before, but it's going to come up again, as it will in many of our episodes, I suspect, today when we discuss the NHS. I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. And I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And this is The Expert Factor. So think back to the summer of 2016 and that big red bus with the slogan on the side. We send the EU £350 million a week. Let's fund our NHS instead. Yet more than seven years on from that referendum, satisfaction with our healthcare system is at its lowest level since 1997 and the healthcare system itself faces a raft of problems, some, though probably not all of which, we hope to touch on today. So let me start with you, Paul, and that question of funding. How well-funded is the NHS now in comparison with recent years? Well, we had very big increases in NHS funding over the 2000s, much, much faster than historically. And over the 2010s, that slowed down. It slowed down a lot. But unlike a lot of public services, spending on the NHS did continue to rise over that period. And then we've had quite a big increase again since 2019 across a lot of public services. Actually, this government has spent quite a lot more than its predecessors. I should also say that by comparison with many other health systems, the NHS is reasonably well funded. I mean, we are not as we were 25 years ago, spending significantly less than the European or developed country average on health. We're spending you know, somewhere around, maybe a little bit above, maybe a little bit below. So on, on, on those measures, in a sense, the NHS hasn't done too badly. It's also worth saying that as a fraction of total government spending, we're spending more and more on the NHS. And as a fraction of what we spend on public services, in other words, not on just transfers and debt interest, We've moved from about a quarter of public service spending at the turn of the century to about 40% now, and quite possibly we'll hit 45% by the end of the decade. So it's taking up a bigger and bigger chunk. So all of that makes it sound like there's plenty of money around. But we know that costs are rising fast. The population is aging. And certainly over the 2010s, we barely increased spending enough just to keep tabs on the aging and increasing size of the population. So we're we're spending a lot more on the NHS than anything else, spending more than we ever have in the past. Is it enough? Well, looking at the outputs, possibly not. And speaking of outputs, Hannah, if I recall, the IFG published a paper last summer in which you talked about a productivity puzzle. Can you just tell us what you meant by that and whether that still exists? Yeah, well, I think, unfortunately, it does still exist. We wanted to look at this sort of conundrum, which four points do, that budgets have been going up, but the productivity of of the NHS doesn't seem to have improved. And the important thing to say is it's a really complicated picture when you try to look into this and, and, and work out what's going on. We thought there were four big issues. One is that we have a very low number of beds in the NHS, Compared to other countries, there's been a sort of decline in the number of beds we have available, and we've now got half as many as we had in the late 1980s. 
Partly that's for good reasons, because we're managing to treat more people out of hospitals, we're reducing lengths of stay and so on. But it really reduces the, the sort of flexibility of the system and the ability to sort of flow patients through the NHS. And by comparison, we've now got half the number of hospital beds per head of population compared to the OECD average. So that's that's one issue. There's also, I mean, any member of the UK population could tell you there's staffing issues in the NHS. We've all been hyper-conscious of the strikes we've seen. That, you know, has had a sort of very immediate and perceptible effect. But one of the other problems is that we've had a big increase in, in staff numbers, but also a lot of turnover through the pandemic. And that means that the staff that we've got are relatively much more inexperienced than they used to be. So on average, probably less productive than they used to be. And maybe the more experienced staff that are left are spending more of their time training those inexperienced staff. One of the big issues, and I'm sure we'll come on to it, so I won't say too much now, is about underinvestment in capital of the NHS estate. And then the fourth one is about management. This is a one which people often find counterintuitive. But what we found is, in, in comparison to, to other systems, the NHS is massively undermanaged not at the centre, not in NHS England, where there were more staff than ever, but in if you look at management capacity in trusts and in integrated care systems, there's a real lack of strategic management capacity. And that means that you actually end up with some of those frontline staff, which politicians like investing in, doing some of this administrative and uh, management work, which we just don't have the managers there to do. There's two things there that I want to pick up on, one of which is staff, which we'll get on to. But let's deal with capital spend first. What are the issues around capital spending? I mean, firstly, I suppose this is for you, Paul. What levels of capital spending have we seen? And two, what issues have those levels created for the NHS as a whole? Yeah, I mean, and it's worth um, it's worth saying on the productivity issue. Why do we think there's a productivity issue? Because the NHS has more money and a lot more staff than it had in 2019, and it's doing no more stuff with that. I mean, that is, in short, what the productivity issue is, having gone through a long period of increasing its outputs. And I think one of those reasons, as Hannah said, is that it's got less machinery and capital to work with than it ought to, because over a long period, what happened was that in any case, we were allocating too little to the capital budget. And a lot of what was allocated to the capital budget got taken and used for day-to-day urgent stuff or emergency stuff, which happens across government too much, but has been a particular issue in the health service. So that what, what does that mean? Well, it means we've got a 10 billion plus backlog of urgent repair work that needs doing to, to buildings, really just stop them falling down or being unsafe. And that's a lot more than it would have been 10 years ago. But we also have less in the way of scanning machines and other pieces of equipment than almost any of our competitor countries. And just as with any organization, whether it be a manufacturing company or, or, or a service organization, if you don't put the investment in, then that's going to result in things being less productive later on. One particular thing, and I've been astonished by this, I'm a member of the Times Health Commission, and a couple of things that have really stuck in my head on that, and we'll come on to the staffing issues later. I mean, all of the medics that we've talked to, including those on the commission itself, have just described in the most astonishing terms how appalling the IT is that they have to work with. 
you can't stop them talking about how appalling the IT is that they have to work with, far worse than I think any of us will have ever had to have worked with in our working lives, taking an inordinate amount of time just to turn things on, having systems that don't talk to each other. And a lot of them say that it was a lot easier when they were just using pen and paper. And so this is just one indication of how not investing over a period of time can actually have a really big negative effect on the productivity that we've been talking about. And actually, this matters in political terms, doesn't it? Because productivity will make a difference to the fortunes of the Prime Minister insofar as Rishi Sunak has made bringing down waiting lists one of his five pledges. So, Hannah, what do you reckon are his chances of achieving that before the next election? Well, it's slightly unclear because the Prime Minister never actually made clear which waiting list he was talking about. But we're assuming he's talking about the elective waiting list, which is the most high profile one. And it's fair to say that the progress made against that pledge has not been good. The elective waiting list has, rather than being brought down, grown by more than 550,000 cases since January this year. And because the government has not been able to provide funding to cover the deficit that's arisen in funding of elective activity that has arisen because the costs have gone up with inflation and there's been lost income from strikes. The NHS has had to downgrade its target for elective activity, which was at 107% to try to sort of tackle the backlogs to 103%. So, you know, the target is still to try to be very slowly bringing down those backlogs, but it's not happening even as fast as the NHS was originally aiming for. So I think uh, it's looking pretty unlikely that he's going to turn that around before the next election, I'd say. And of course, staffing is one issue that is mentioned quite a lot. And the NHS now has this long-term workforce plan. Do we think that this is a plan that might help address some of the issues we've been discussing so far? Well, in, in the very long run, if it happens, then it should. I mean, I mean, let's say, first of all, that this workforce plan has come 75 years too late. I mean, this is the first proper workforce plan the NHS has ever had, which you might find surprising given it's one of Europe's or indeed the world's biggest employers, and it takes years and years to employ people. And actually having a workforce planning, you might think, is one of the most important things that you could do. I mean, I suppose the issue with the workforce plan, when you look at it, is it looks like it's it's almost too ambitious. If you take it at face value, it implies very, very big increases in staffing over the next 10 or 15 years. It basically says, by the end of the period, nearly one in 10 workers in the, in the UK will be employed by the NHS. It would come at a cost of about £50 billion, which is a very big number indeed. So yes, if you did all of that, then you would make an enormous difference to the output and probably the productivity of the NHS. And I suppose but I suppose I just worry about whether it's something that will really happen. And if it doesn't really happen, then one wonders about whether there was any point in doing it in the first place. But yes, in principle, it should help. We need such a plan. There's quite a lot of good stuff in it in terms of both structure of workforce and numbers of people needed and so on and so on. But as with many of these things right across government, it's easier to write the plan uh, than it is to implement it in a way that's actually going to work. I do want to come in there, Paul, and, and endorse what you said at the start, which, I mean, it is definitely welcome that this exercise has been embarked upon and it is long overdue. But to also go back to something I said earlier, the focus in the workforce plan is very much on the frontline staff 
And one of the problems, which, as I've said, is the sort of lack of management capacity. It's, it's much sketchier when it comes to the administrative and management staff side. And so that is something which, as you say, Paul, you know, the whole thing has an has a, a incredible level of ambition also in terms of the sort of productivity increases that it envisages. But it is a good thing that it exists and it's, the government is to be commended for producing it at all. I mean, let's just dwell on that for a minute, if I can, Hannah, because it's quite contested, isn't it? We've heard sort of angry political debates about managers in the health service, but why does it matter? I mean, what 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 do the right management levels and having good managers? What does that mean? Is it why is it important? Well, if you don't have enough managers, and I mean, we don't just mean sort of people doing the most basic administrative tasks. We're talking about people who are able to evaluate what's being done, think about efficiencies, think at a more strategic level. But if you don't have enough of these people, it does mean that frontline staff have to spend more time doing that themselves and doing admin work themselves. It means that senior management staff get dragged into operational management. And although you know, sometimes the frontline staff are, are really good people to think about how to improve performance, that's not what they're supposed to have been recruited to do and you know politicians love to promise to increase the number of frontline staff particularly doctors and nurses and particularly in hospitals the political narrative is when it comes to the nhs is very hospital focused and we hear much less about public health and prevention and, and social care and as paul says those those frontline staff have successfully been increased but arguably that's a, that's been at the cost of ignoring the other parts of the system which are more important for the NHS to really work effectively. So there's an issue with the type of staff, but I'm, I think I'm also right in saying that under the workforce plan, we have an idea how the government's going to fund the training, but not much of an idea about how they plan to fund the massive increases in staff on the payroll going forward. Is that is that fair? Well, I think that's part. I mean, that, that's the whole issue with the plan. It uh, is predicated, as I was saying, on a very, very big increase indeed in spending on the NHS over the next 15, 10, 15 years. Now, that will may well happen. I mean, the NHS does eat up more and more and more of national resource. And if it were to increase by a couple of percent of national income over the next 10, 15 years, that wouldn't be in the least bit surprising. But governments need to recognise that and plan for it. So we talked recently about the autumn statement of uh, mid November this year, and there was no indication in that whatsoever that the Chancellor recognised that, you know, back in June, his government announced this NHS workforce plan, which will, as I keep saying, require tens of billions of extra money. And yet he penciled in tiny increases in public spending over the next five years. Now, the problem is that, that, that these two things aren't consistent. You've got in June, the government says we're going to spend tens and tens of billions more on health. And of course, they've also talked about increasing spending on defence and all these other things. And then in their own fiscal statement, they say, look, there's really no money to spend over the next five years on public services. What we're going to do is cut national insurance contributions instead. So I think that's where the problem lies. And it's not specific to the NHS workforce plan. I think it is more general about spending on health, but it's also more general about a lot of the other promises that are either explicitly or implicitly made by government. I mean, one thing I've noticed about the uh, workforce plan is it implies we're going to have an awful lot of students in universities being trained, and it's it's far from clear to me that we have the, the capacity to do that. Is, do either of you 
have any thoughts about that? Have we have we thought through how we train the numbers that we claim we're going to train? Well, it will certainly take uh, an increase in capacity to do that, assuming, of course, we're not going to fall back on recruiting people from overseas, which is certainly what a large part of the NHS has relied on for a very long period of time. I think there is also a need to think again about how the training works. If you talk to a lot of people, experts, much more expert in this than I am, there is a concern, I think, that um, some of the training still looks uh, too similar to what it looked like decades ago, rather than being something that is more appropriate for the new technologies and the new ways of of doing things. But yes, if we're going to train a lot more people, we're going to need a, a lot more capacity to do it. Okay, so there's bringing in new people. There's also the issue of keeping the people we've got. And, and retention is, is an issue in the NHS, isn't it, at the moment, Hannah? Yeah, it is. And it has been, I mean, particularly from mid sort of 2021, we saw a net movement of British doctors and nurses out of hospitals. And, and as, as Paul says, uh, a trend that we'd anyway seen in general, but an in- increase in recruitment of people coming from abroad. And I think, I mean, I'm sure that Paul has a lot of colour on this from the Health Commission, but I think there's a lot of stories from the front line of the pressure on frontline staff and the you know, it was particularly bad of course during during the pandemic but the problems with the state the problems with it is as paul was describing the lack of equipment and all these things are, don't make for a conducive working environment for people once they end up in the nhs so the problem is that you manage to recruit these people but they don't necessarily stick around and if you're bringing in staff from overseas, which, as Paul says again, has been the the solution in recent years, those people tend to work for less long when they arrive. So you get more turnover and that can be a problem too. So, yeah, it's not enough just to train enough new people. You have to keep them there once you've recruited them. In a sense, this, this slightly takes us back to where we started off with me discussing the, the infighting in the Conservative Party about immigration, because... I suppose there's two questions. I mean, on the one hand, what are the implications for the health service of the kinds of steps on immigration that the government has announced in terms of taking up the salary threshold and things like that? On the other, presumably, even if training all these doctors means that eventually we'll need to bring fewer people in, that's going to take time, isn't it? It's not going to change overnight. So presumably, significant shifts in the immigration system is going to have an an immediate knock-on effect on the NHS, isn't it? Yeah, and it'll have two effects. Um, and, and you're right, obviously, it takes a long time to get the training done. I mean, one effect is to the extent that there are roles in the NHS that are paid below that 30, 38,000 mark. And quite a lot of roles um, that are important will be paid below that. That's going to be harder to recruit. But the knock-on impact in the social care sector, where, for example, people are being told they're not allowed to bring in dependents, I, I would have thought that must be make it harder to recruit people from overseas. The knock-on effect, I mean, we know that one of the problems with the NHS at the moment and productivity problems is that they're finding it hard to move people into the care sector. Well, if you're making the care sector harder to run because of your policy and immigration, you're going to make things more difficult for the NHS. And this is is exactly the kind of trade-off that we just need to be much clearer about. If we want to control immigration and if we want to put these kinds of limits on and if we want to stop people bringing their dependents over, then we need to recognise that we're probably going to have to pay more to get British people to work in 
the care sector or in those parts of the NHS that we're no longer able to get people from overseas on. And But if we're going to pay more for people, then it doesn't work with having a really tight uh, statement of how much we're actually going to spend. I mean, it doesn't feel like joined up government. For the time being, the government has, of course, exempt the ability to bring in health and care workers uh, because of a shortage occupation. So they've been exempt from this minimum annual salary increase. But as you say, Paul, I think there's a sort of potentially a bit of a nuanced effect on, on who you'll be able to bring in. So you may be able to bring in still the less experienced, more mobile people with fewer dependents who are maybe not so, so worried about being able to come without their dependents. It's likely to be harder to recruit the more specialist, experienced, more senior people who are more likely to be that bit older and have families that they wouldn't contemplate moving without. So I think there's definitely as you say, Paul, knock-on effects of the very salient public debate we're having at the moment, political debate about immigration for public services in the form of the NHS. Interesting. Now, I mean, we focus quite a lot, as always tends to happen when we talk about the NHS or health on hospitals, but of course there's loads more to the NHS than that. And there are issues as well when it comes to GPs, aren't there? A number of them, whether it's retention or other things. I don't know if if either of you want to sort of mention that. I mean, there is loads more to the NHS than hospitals, but there's, there's, as it were, less loads more than there used to be because it is, um, it is in hospitals that you know we, we've had this very, very big increase in spending over the last twenty-five years, and I think there are something like twice as many hospital consultants as there were twenty-five years ago, and not a single more GP than there was twenty-five years ago. So you've had a very big rebalancing. Despite all of the rhetoric from every health secretary that I can think of, despite all of the rhetoric saying that public health and primary health care and GPs and health in the community are the priority, look at the behaviour and the priority has been hospitals, 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 all the way through. Now, actually, when we look at the um, productivity numbers we were talking about earlier, actually GPs to some extent are exempted from that. The number of GP appointments has gone up since pre-pandemic, despite the fact there are no more GPs whilst the number of operations being taken ha- happening in hospitals have not gone up, despite the fact there are a lot more hospital doctors. So make of that what you will over that period. But certainly we do have an issue about recruiting GPs, partly because of this pressure of work. A lot of GPs clearly feel overstretched. Uh, it's also the case that a remarkably high fraction, I can't remember the, mum- the numbers, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's over 80%, um, are part-time. I mean, there are not very many absolutely full-time GPs now. And I think one of the reasons that they give is that they find the pressure of work too much to be able to do that on a full-time basis. It's also related, and this is just a point of fact, as it were, to the feminization of the workforce. A very large fraction of GPs are are female, and they're particularly likely to work part-time, making, again, this issue about training large numbers of people and so on, particularly important. And one of the things which we looked at in our performance tracker report is the demand on GPs. And as you say, Paul, the, n- the number of GPs hasn't increased, but since 2016, there's been an 8% increase in the number of patients per GP in the least deprived parts of the country. But in the most deprived parts of the country, there's been a 24% increase in the number of patients per GP. So there are more people wanting more appointments for every GP, but in in the places which are uh, the most deprived, that is where the greatest pressures are. And I think, you know, this isn't just a, a uniform effect across the country. There are some really serious pinch points in, in certain areas. 
as I think I've said before on this podcast, if you're in any danger of feeling positive and upbeat, then do have a look at the performance <laughs> tracker from the IFG because that will quickly puncture your balloon for you. And whilst I'm in plugging mode, it's also worth saying that the IFS have got some really interesting stuff on the state pension that I think was out today and that you can find on their website. But if, I mean, this is this is a, an episode in its own right, but we can't not touch on it. We were meant to have a plan for social care, weren't we? We meant to have several, several we've had several plans. We were meant to have the definitive one. Where are we on that? Oh, God. It's so depressing. (laughs) (laughs) You you apologise for being depressing and then bring up the most depressing depressing issue in the whole of public policy. (laughs) So against considerable um, opposition. Um, uh, I mean, it's extraordinary. And as you you, you alluded to, we've had huge numbers of, um, you know, we've had dozens of reports on social care and so on. And we had a promise um, up until just over a year ago that a new system would be in place I was either by this autumn or next autumn. I can't remember which. I think it might even have been by this autumn, where people were it were um, guaranteed they wouldn't have to sell up all of their assets to pay for their social care. That anything over eighty something thousand pounds would be paid for, and so on. And, and then a year ago, the Chancellor pulled the plug on it and said that would be kicked into the long grass for another year or two. People have been planning on it happening. It's not happening. We don't now know if and when it will happen, it has yet again, just yet again, be kicked in, been kicked into the long grass. And that's just that particular issue around the extent to which people have to pay for their, in, essentially all of their social care, sell their house to, to, to pay for it and so on. And that ignores the kind of some of the almost bigger issues about the total level of funding, the extent to which local authorities are really, really, really struggling to keep on top of this. Uh, this is much more than adult and children's social care is now much more than half of everything that local authorities do. It's eating into their budgets. It's part of the reason why we, you know, every other week it seems we see a local authority going bust. We we don't have a fair level of funding across the country for for social care, and we have no clear way forward. I mean, it's um, it's it's hard to find a single positive thing to say about it. I'm afraid. I think Paul's absolutely right that this is a very troubled area of policy making. It's actually something we're planning to do a focus piece of work on at the IFG. We we have this series of pieces of work we do on what we call chronic policy problems, and I think social care is a very good candidate to look at in that space because it's just something that the politicians find very difficult to address. We've had a, a number of occasions when it's become an electoral issue. Most recently, uh, Theresa May's proposals in 2017 being sort of painted as a as a death tax, even though actually in some ways they were an improvement on on where we are now. And I think the politicians have just seen their predecessors be stung repeatedly on on trying to sort this out. And so there's very little appetite, as far as I can tell, to progress it at the moment. And just to get back to one of my hobby horses, it's one of those archetypal areas where you need a degree of cross-party agreement to do this and to carry it forward. And that's just been so, as we saw with the general election in 2017. Yeah, and, and uh, in 2010. I mean, the, the, the Labour yeah. had a perfectly sensible proposal in 2010. The Tories called it a death tax. Tories had a perfectly sensible proposal in 2017. Labour called it a dementia tax. I mean, they both made the mistake of announcing it sort of at or just before an election, rather than in both of their cases, they both had more than a decade to sort the sodding thing out. And they haven't, and they didn't. The big question is, are we just in a state of denial that given rising costs, aging population, 
this notion of a model that is free at the point of use can survive? I don't think we are in denial. I think a, a model that is free at the point of use can survive. Uh, so I don't think we're in denial about that. And, and look, basically, with different bells and whistles and maybe little, little bits of payment here and there, most health systems, in certainly in Western Europe and in, in, in much of the developed world, are effectively free at the point of use. Or if they're not, they're very cheap at the point of use. I think the thing we're probably more in denial about is the is the cost of it. And I think we just do have to accept that over the next 30 years, maybe three, maybe even 4% of national income extra will be spent on health. And that's a lot. That's another 100 billion a year. But in a sense, we shouldn't be surprised. I and mean, as we get richer, we probably want to spend money on health. I mean, there's no point being rich if you're sick and dead. So um, it's, uh, you know, that's why as you get better off, you want to spend more money on health. And it's not just that. We are getting older. There are a lot of chronic diseases. New technologies are expensive. And it's one of the very odd uh, bits of the economy in a way where getting better at it doesn't necessarily make it cheaper. Because if you get better at it and keep people alive, well, the buggers come back and get sick again. Whereas, you know, most 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 sort of um, services, if you get better at something, then it becomes cheaper. But that's not necessarily the case with health. I, I just have one rider to that in terms of free at the point of use. It's not huge, but it is clear that at the moment, more and more people are paying upfront for their health care because waiting lists are so long. And that helps the NHS in some sense. It takes people off the waiting list, but it's often the same doctors who are doing the operating if it's in the private sector. I think there is there's at least a risk that we will move to a slightly different settlement where more people are effectively skipping queues, if you want to put it that way, or f- funding themselves privately because they've got used to doing that, because the quality of the public service has got so poor that people who can afford to go down a different route do so. So I think there is, I don't think there's a risk in my view, that we won't have, you know, in 20 years' time, an NHS which is free at the point of use. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we'll still be there. I'm not so sure that we won't be in a world in which a reasonably significant min- minority of people are paying for themselves because the quality of that service isn't what they want. But going back to what you said about IT earlier, and just on the basis of a conversation with a doctor friend of mine, we'll need to improve the interface between private providers and the NHS so the two can talk to each other as a matter of course. Because if people are flitting between the two systems, we need to be able to keep up with records and things like that, which I think will be an interesting challenge, actually. That's very optimistic. I mean, the NHS fails to talk to itself at the moment. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean seriously, I mean, I mean, multiple systems within hosp- within single hospitals and trusts that can't yeah. talk to, to each other. And certainly once you move between trusts, they really struggle. So so bringing, talking to the private sector on top of that, I mean, that's, um, I mean you're right, of course, but <laughs> that's, uh, we are a long way from there. This is the one group in which I find myself being the sunny optimist. Uh. <laughs> and I, can I just pick up on another sort of future focus thing? And I think, I mean, this may be shaped by the fact I spent quite a lot of this week watching Boris Johnson give evidence to the COVID inquiry, which is not necessarily good use of my time. But anyway, compelling watching. And I, I think one of the things emerging from the inquiry for me is really just reinforcement of this sense that, you know, in, so, in some ways, we have to also think about the resilience of the NHS because it's highly likely that there will be future pandemics. 
And Paul's talked a lot about, you know, what we should be willing to spend being a wealthy country. But we've seen very starkly with the pandemic how being affected by such a sort of major medical crisis has an enormous effect on the economy and uh, you know pushes up our debt in terms of uh, what we had to spend on on employment support and all those sorts of things but it's also the case if you look at the comparison between countries that those countries with healthier populations with fewer comorbidities in the lingo did better in terms of 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 death and serious illness and so if we can really su- support the NHS and spend enough on it that we can enhance the health of our population and keep people healthier for longer, we're likely to suffer less badly in future pandemics. And that is, in the end, better for us economically if we can see that far into the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obesity is one of the was my, one of the major risk factors, I think, for being affected by COVID, and that's another of our chronic policy problems. Which, because it cuts across the responsibilities of different government departments, and because it really sort of raises questions for politicians about individual liberty versus what might be good for society and for the NHS in terms of things like uh, sugar taxes and so on. It's just something that politicians have found really difficult to tackle and that we've seen the consequences in increasing levels of obesity, particularly in children, unfortunately, but also across the whole population. Well, as luck would have it, we are going to be tackling the COVID inquiry on our episode next week. But that's all we're going to have time for today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Even if you haven't, give us a five-star review. Go on, you know it makes sense. But for the moment, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them.